From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And welcome again to Open Line Monday here on EWTN Radio. Very glad to have you along for the ride. Jack Williams is away today. I'm Tom Price along with our Monday host, Father John Tregilio. How are you, Padre? I'm doing well, thank you. Big day for you there at the uh, seminary, right? <laughs> yes, we have our new men who uh, yesterday and today they're getting acclimated to the place. Wow. And then Thursday we have the old guys coming back. Not chronologically speaking. <laughs> uh, right, right, right. Yeah. And then uh, Monday's our first day of class. I bet you're excited about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's yes, also, I am. It's, it's also a big day uh, for the, the church because uh, today is a solemnity, right? Solemnity, Our Lady of the Assumption. However, it's not a, a holy day of obligation because it falls on a Monday. So even though uh, you don't have to go, you're encouraged to go. I know priests all over mm-hmm. the world are celebrating Mass today in the morning, afternoon, and even in the evening. So if you're able to go, I would say go to get the graces and to oh, yeah. especially show your devotion to Our Lady. Absolutely. Let's uh, give out that phone number then, Father, and then we'll go to some emails. Here is the number to call if you have a question for Father John Tregilio, and that is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-EWTN. 288-3986. If you'd like to shoot us an email instead, the address is openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure that you put Monday or Father John in the subject line so that we can make sure that the uh, right question goes to the right host. So we're going to lead off here with an email from Mary, and uh, from the tone of her email, I would say she is a non-Catholic. Here's what Mary has to say. Why don't Catholic churches follow the tradition of body and blood with the host and wine? I understand the issue with using the same cup and that there may be germs, but does it have to be one cup or can it just be a tray of small shot-type glasses? The scriptures read body and blood. A prayer is said to include both body and blood, but it feels like the church has created something that is not following tradition. What say you, Father? Okay, well, the, the actual tradition was always that, in, especially in the Western Church, uh, people did not receive both uh, sacred species. Mm-hmm. And it was more of a practical point. It's not a theological issue, because Jesus' uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity is contained in, in either one. So if you see the sacred host, or if you drink a sip of the precious blood from the chalice, you're receiving the whole Christ. Um, but because of the dangerous spillage and... It's easier to spread germs you know, through the liquid than through the host. Um, and then, since the time of the, of the Reformation, Martin Luther insisted that you had, the people had to receive both, or they weren't receiving the full communion. And Council Trent said that absolutely not, that's not what we believe, uh, because uh, when you separate body from blood, that's death. And mm-hmm. that's why there's a separate consecration of the bread and the wine at Mass. But 
Jesus didn't stay dead, he rose, and so you're receiving the risen Christ, his risen body, his risen blood, mm. and so even in one fraction, a piece of the host, you're receiving the whole Jesus, and that's why um, when people start getting crazy, and I remember when I was a new pastor, uh, some parishioners said, well, I only got half a communion. I said, you can't get half a communion. <laughs> uh, if you only receive the host, you're receiving a whole communion. If I give you half a host, you're not receiving half a communion. Um, so in the in the Latin church, you know, we have the, the, the norm is, is to have the, the sacred host. I know since the Second Vatican Council, uh, it's encouraged, but it's not mandatory that everybody be offered. Now, the priest uh, must receive both because uh, he's um, celebrating the, the sacrifice and he's um, offering a mass intention. But mm -hmm. the people in the pew, uh, we don't do shot glasses. We don't uh, pass it around. Um, and I know since COVID, a lot, even places where they do offer it, people are a little leery sure, about sure. receiving mm -hmm. it. But I understand if you have a um, um, celiac or gluten intolerance, um, they do have special hosts you can, uh, the parish can, can provide for you. In some cases, people can't even receive that. And so uh, when I was helping out in New Jersey, a little boy would bring his own little chalice before Mass, and we would put uh, either the consecrated wine in there uh, and give it to him because he couldn't receive anything um, host-wise. Wow. Okay. Well, very good. And uh, thank you so much for your uh, your question there, Mary. Here's one now from Eileen. What is Catholic social justice, and how does it differ from plain old justice? Well, <laughs> it's not necessarily Catholic social justice. It's that the Catholic Church uh, certainly makes it clear that there is such a thing as social justice. Okay. And um, there usually, typically there's three divisions of justice in general. There's distributive justice, commutative justice, and then social justice. And social justice is the broad um, connection of the individual with the world or society, okay? Um, commutative justice is between individuals, you and me. If I borrow $5 from you out of justice, I, owe to, I should pay you back, okay? That's um, commutative justice. Sure. Distributive is the one and the many. So, um, you know, a company hires you, and you're the one employee, well, you know, you have to give a full day's work, and then you get your full day's pay. Uh, you belong to an organization, a club. You join the Knights of Columbus or the Moose Lodge. Okay, there are things expected from membership and then ex things expected from the group or organization. Social justice is a bit broader. Uh, it includes things like uh, the environment, but also the economy, um, you know, being concerned for the, the needs of the poor in general. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so it's not limited to Catholics, but since uh, Pope uh, Leo XIII, uh, there's been much more on the, f on the f uh, forefront on the fact that there is such a thing as social justice. Okay. Eileen, thanks so much for your question. Uh, phone lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Father John Tregilio, 833-288-3986. Here's an email from Aaron. During the crucifixion, when Jesus says, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, can you elaborate on this metaphor, Jesus is speaking to Jerusalem? Okay, the, the reference of the daughters of Jerusalem, it's, it's a way of referring to um, not just the women, the, the biological women who live in the city of Jerusalem, uh -huh. but it's also this concept of um, 
the children of of Jerusalem, the spiritual children. And um, typically, when there was a death in the family, uh, it was the the women's job and prerogative to mourn, to cry, to lament. Uh-huh. And you know, we see that even today. You go to an Italian uh, funeral, you'll see the ladies dressed in black throwing themselves on the on the uh, casket. And, yeah. that. Um, and so at the time of Jesus, the, that reference of the daughters of Jerusalem were referring to not just those particular people, but in general, uh, people who are even just spiritually connected, uh, mm. ch- spiritual children of Jerusalem, don't weep uh, for, for Christ's death, but weep for the, the your sins and the sins of, of your children. Because uh, Jesus died as an innocent victim, mm. uh, we're guilty, and we need uh, God's forgiveness and mercy. Very good. Thank you so much uh, for your question, Aaron. And we'll uh, go out on this one here from Rob. Rob says, while praying the rosary, I realized Jesus' first miracle was changing water to wine, and his last miracle was changing wine into his blood. How do these two things relate to each other? Well, the, the the first one, changing the water into wine, is a foreshadowing, in one sense, of what he's going to do in the Last Supper. But it's also a symbolic gesture. It was a true miracle. Uh-huh. So I don't want people to think that this was pretend. He actually and really turned water into wine. Yeah. But he did it at the wedding feast of Cana. And it's there where the church believes that he elevated uh, marriage from the natural state that it was since the time of Adam and Eve mm-hmm. to the level of a sacrament. And so uh, water exists naturally. Wine has to be made. You need to crush the grapes. They need to ferment. Sure. Becomes wine. Doesn't do it by itself. Mm. And likewise, a sacra- the sacrament of Christian marriage isn't just something one stumbles into. Uh, marriage exists between a man and a woman, but the sacrament of matrimony, Christian marriage, uh, is of a higher level. So Jesus is performing that miracle, his first miracle, public miracle, uh, at the wedding feast at Cana, it's also uh, symbolized in that gesture. But there is the, the foreshadowing of his turning his uh, wine then into his precious blood. Um, but first and foremost, we want that connection with marriage. Very good. And uh, Rob, thank you so much uh, for your email. Uh, wow, four or five terrific emails there in a row. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, the address is uh, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Hey, calls are coming in right now, but there's room for you as well. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio here on EWTN. Stay with us. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Glad you could join us for Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. A couple of lines are open at the moment for you at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. As we mentioned a little bit earlier in the program, today is, of course, the solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. But 
It's also a big day for us here at EWTN. We are very blessed today to celebrate the 41st anniversary of EWTN. It was back on this day in 1981, Mother Angelica flipped the switch, broadcast the very first program on EWTN television. That brings us to today, where EWTN is, of course, the largest religious media network in the world, 11 global TV channels, radio on over 500 domestic AM and FM stations, and uh, around the world as well. One of the largest Catholic websites in America, plus Catholic News Agency, National Catholic Register, EWTN Publishing, and so much more. And of course, we do thank God, and we thank you for 41 wonderful years of Catholic media. And Father, I want to thank you because uh, you have brought so much to EWTN over the years with all the programs that you've done for TV and radio. Well, thank you. It's, it's been an enormous pleasure and privilege. And I remember in the early days when Father Levis and I and my mother met Mother Angelica, and every time we come down, we would uh, spend a little time with her. And uh, yeah. she was phenomenal. Oh, yes. I miss her to this day. I know that I always will. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is John to lead us off from Nova Scotia, uh, who watches us on EWTN television. Hey, John, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, yes, I'd like to have, I have a question for Father John Basilio. Uh-huh. Um, I know today is a feast of the solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary into Heaven. Uh, that I'm just wondering, uh, Father John, um, Mary has had several apparitions on earth, you know, like Fatima, Lourdes, Medjugorje, etc. When she came to earth, to these people that she came to, to expose herself to the world, to them and to the world, was that in her corporal body, her actual body, her heavenly body, when she came in those apparitions after she was assumed into heaven, body and soul? Okay, well, that's an excellent question, and... Um According to St. Thomas Aquinas, um, the, the reason why we use the word apparition is because Mary appears, uh, appears in the sense that the, the eyes see an image. But the Church uh, has not made a definitive de fide uh, dogmatic statement on this, but um, tends to agree with St. Thomas Aquinas that it's not her physical body, her glorified body, which is in heaven now, but that it, there is an appearance. And the same with Jesus when he appeared to St. Margaret Mary uh, to promote the devotion to the Sacred Heart, or when he appeared to St. Faustina, uh, it was not his glorified body, but it was a real vision, a real sighting. Uh, the eyes perceived something, okay? And it was, you know, Mary at these apparitions. But that's why we use that particular term uh, that just like we use the word allocution, that Mary speaks to someone without them necessarily seeing her. So although they see Mary as an image, and it's really Mary, it's not her historical uh, glorified body, which we believe stays in heaven. Also, John uh, mentioned uh, uh, visionaries of, in uh, Medjugorje, which was has not been approved by the Church, correct, Father? That's right. It has not been approved. Uh, it has not been... Uh, completely condemned, but priests were cautioned not necessary to uh, promote the devotion. Uh, so if people go, and certainly things happen, they have uh, experiences, but there are approved apparitions, like 
Lourdes and Fatima and Guadalupe and Knock Ireland, where the faithful are in fact encouraged to go, and you can receive indulgences for going to those uh, particular Marian shrines. Very good. John, thanks again for your call, and that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's an email now from Bob. A Catholic widow and a Catholic widower have fallen in love in their 80s. They are now living together and intimate without intercourse because of medical issues. What is your thought on no sin, venial sin, or mortal sin? (laughs) Marriage is no problem except for the possibility of going into a nursing home and getting all funds earmarked for our children and and grandchildren's inheritances. Sounds kind of tricky, Father. Yeah, um, it's more than just not having sexual relations, okay? Because obviously... Um, if you're not married in the eyes of God, if this isn't a sacrament, then that would be considered uh, the sin of fornication. And uh, if they had spouses who were still alive, it would be uh, adultery. But the fact that they're both a widow and a widower, all right, um, them playing house, as we would say, living as husband and wife, even though they may not be uh, having relations with each other, they're living under the same roof. Um, and if they're sharing the same bed, even though they may not be having intercourse, all right, this is what we call violation of public propriety. A normal person is going to think that, you know, regardless of what they're doing late at night, that they're living as husband and wife. And even if this was a younger couple, I know sometimes um, people who are older say, well, you know, for Social Security purposes, well, you don't have to live in the same house, or if you do, you should have separate rooms, and it should be very, you know, um, clear to people on the outside that, you know, you are not living as husband and wife because that causes scandal because people would presume that, you know, you're enjoying all the uh, dimensions of marriage. And I understand that they want some friendship and, uh, you know, how they define intimacy is was a little bit ambiguous here because, mm-hmm. you know, they said they're not having relations. But what do they mean by intimacy? I mean, um, hugging and kissing is, is intimacy it's not sexual intercourse, but uh, it could be very um, tempting, and you could be an occasion of sin. So uh, in those situations, I say it's better that they live on the outside as they do on the inside. They're not husband and wife. They can spend as much time as they want together uh, as friends, uh, but in separate residences, separate locations. I knew uh, the same situation when I was in Hershey, Pennsylvania, at St. Joan of Arc, um, they were they grew up together. They married different people. Their spouses died. They got houses next to each other. Okay, ah. and they they had their meals together. But they lived. They went to bed separately, not just in their own bedroom, but in their own house. Sure, very good. And uh, Bob, thank you so much uh, for your question. Let's go to Terry now in Fairfax, Virginia, listening on the Ave Maria Radio app. Hey, Terry, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, yes, uh, good afternoon, and um, thank you for taking my call, and hello, Father. Um, I have a question. I wrote it down, and I'm going to basically uh, tell the question exactly how I wrote it. Okay. So that okay. I, I, don't go in, I don't go into tangents. Um, can a pope, with synodal input and endorsement from other bishops and cardinals, rewrite the teachings in the catechism regarding homosexual, sexual activity, and contraception. 
Okay, could a pope do that, Father? I would say he he cannot. I mean, that's not to say that um, it, it may not be attempted, but um, the Church's teachings, all right, on faith and morals, especially when they're considered a psalm, and, and it's not just de fide, all right? There's only two uh, ex-Catholic statements that popes have made, Pius IX on the Immaculate Conception and Pius XII on the Assumption, which coincidentally we're celebrating today. There's also the ordinary infallible magisterium of the Church, and that's what the Church has consistently been teaching uh, throughout her history, and just like uh, Humani Vitae was not the first time um, the Church condemned contraception, um, it's been consistently taught. It is an infallible teaching, although that document, Humani Vitae, is not an ex cathedra statement any more than Ornatio Sartre de Tallis, where John Paul II said that women could not be ordained priests. Um, it's the same principle. So a pope and uh, a synod of bishops and cardinals, whatever, um, you know, that doesn't mean that you might not have s some efforts, but I cannot perceive the Holy Spirit uh, allowing uh, the, the faithful to get the impression that this is official church teaching, because this is part of the indefectibility of the church and, its, and her infallibility. Uh, doesn't mean that you might have some individual popes or bishops or cardinals, priests, deacons, whatever, uh, who might personally ascribe to these things. But when the church officially teaches, and we're talking about the natural moral law here, mm -hmm. so the fact that um, you know there is no same-sex marriages, um, homosexual activity is, is forbidden, just as heterosexual activity outside of marriage is forbidden, um, contraception, abortion, euthanasia, these are all things that the church officially teaches that we must accept. So I, I cannot envision um, the Holy Spirit in any way, shape, or form just allowing this to happen. Um, that doesn't mean there may not be people talking about it. I hear people suggesting it in current uh, times, but um, when push comes to shove and the rubber hits the road, as they say, uh, I cannot see it actually taking place because uh, that would um, invite that would violate the integrity of the church's uh, teaching authority. All right, and we thank you so much uh, for your call, Terry. Here's an email from John. I've taken a morality class during my senior year at high school. My teacher said that shame was the sin of pride. Is this true? Well, I mean, uh, that's a little ambiguous. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's good shame and there's bad shame, all right? Mm, sure. Just like there's good pride and bad pride, all right? We say that pride's a sin, but that's uh, undue pride where, you know, you think you're better than someone else. But there's healthy pride when you take pride in your work. Uh, not that you brag about what you do, but that you're, there's some self-satisfaction that you're doing your best. Uh, that's a good thing. You know, we should take pride in our work. Sure. We should take pride in, in things that we do, but not that it puffs us up. And the same with shame. There's good shame where I have regrets uh, for thing, mistakes I have made or sins I've committed. The bad shame is when I impose this on other people, make them feel bad. Mm. I communicate to them that they're less of a human being because of what they've done. I, I shame them. I expose them for public ridicule. That's a bad thing, but if I do fraternal correction, as Jesus uh, tells us in, in the scripture, you go privately and discreetly and with charity and point out your, your brother's errors 
always remembering that before you pull out uh, the splinter in his eye, you got to take care of the two by four sticking to your own skull. Yeah. Uh, so there is good shame, bad shame, and uh, it, it depends on the context and the degree. John, we hope that clarifies it for you. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, the address again, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. In a moment, we'll talk with Catherine, a first-time caller in Palm City, Florida. A couple lines open for your input right now at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Open line Monday with Father John Fragilio on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, our phone number here for Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. It's open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We'll go back to the phones in just a moment. want to let you know that several of our EWTN radio family members are celebrating their anniversaries this week. Annunciation Radio with five stations in Northern Ohio celebrating 12 years on the air this week and the Station of the Cross with 16 stations in four states, including uh, cities like Boston and Rochester. And wow, they're, they're big, and we love them. They are celebrating an amazing 22 years with EWTN. So our congratulations going out to Dave Vacheres at Annunciation Radio, Jim Wright at the Station of Their Cross, and their teams for uh, working very hard to bring you solid Catholic radio each and every day. All right, back to the phones right now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Catherine, a first-time caller in Palm City, Florida, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Catherine, what's on your mind today? Um, hi, I would like to tell a little story about Mother Angelica okay. founding the radio station, if that's okay. Sure, go ahead. Um, in the early 1980s, my father, Tom, had retired from the Air Force, and he started a video production studio in Mobile, Alabama. And he did a lot of work for Archbishop Lipscomb, Oscar Lipscomb. Mm-hmm. And one day, Archbishop asked, my dad to have lunch with this nun and she wanted to start a video production studio so my dad had lunch with her and then he took her shopping quote unquote shopping to find out everything she needed to start a television studio mm. and she wanted the best she didn't want to cut any corners and so he helped her pick out the camera the light the microphone everything you would need to set up a studio. So while they, and he, uh, my dad took her to the guy he bought stuff from. Mm-hmm. And so at the end, the, they came to the bill, and the bill was quite absorbent of how much money. It was like two or 3000 I don't remember, but it was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And, the, and my dad looked at sister and asked her, how much did she have? And she said, well, she only had like $250 but don't worry about it, that God would take care. So to go ahead and process the order. So she went back that night and got with the nuns there in the cloister, and they stayed on their knees praying the rosary and other prayers all night long. And then sometime around like 6 in the morning or something, they get a call from a guy that wants to give them a donation, 
And lo and behold, he wanted to give them the exact same amount they needed to buy the equipment. Wow. Wow. What a great story. You ever heard that one, Father? No, but I've heard similar ones where Mother certainly had profound faith and trust. And it, it worked out. It absolutely <laughs> did. Hey, thanks for sharing that, Catherine. Here is a question now from Jim. In Matthew sixteen nineteen, we read about binding and loosing authority. My evangelical friend believes this passage to be in reference to spiritual authority over the spirits and that all Christians have this authority. Can you give me the Catholic response to this idea? Well, it's very clear that Jesus is addressing Peter. The other apostles are there, but um, when you look at the Greek text itself, unlike the English, which sometimes has some ambiguity, in other languages, particularly when you use the word you, okay, there's singular and then there's the plural. And so he would have used the plural if he wanted this to extend to everybody else, including Peter, mm-hmm. especially the apostles or you and I, but he used this the singular uh, reference. So He's saying to Peter directly, you have this uh, authority, which then Peter hands on to his successors. And so the power of loosening and um, um, binding, Mm -hmm. all right, it's juridical. And we see this in the the sacrament of, of penance, reconciliation, but also in the teaching authority, that the Pope has the fullness of teaching authority. Uh, It's full, immediate, and universal. And this was conveyed to him, especially with the mentioning of the symbol of the keys. He didn't actually hand him physical keys, but that image of keys. The the prime minister, the chamberlain of yeah. the kingdom would get keys from the king. One was to the treasury, to, where they collected the taxes, but also paid the soldiers. And then there was a key to the prison to lock up uh, the enemies of the king, but also in mercy to release them. Okay. And so Jesus gave those keys to Peter. This is... I mean, when you look at the text, very clear that this was to Peter, and as soon as um, he he was gone, you have Linus, Cletus, Clement, and Sixtus, and the, all those successors going back or going up to now today, to Pope Francis, uh, they have that fullness of, of of teaching authority, but also of jurisdiction. That's why um, the Pope has to approve, give a mandate for for um, a priest to become a bishop somewhere. All right. Thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's uh, one now from Deborah watching us today on YouTube. Uh, Father Tregilio, many Catholics refer to St. Thomas Aquinas as an authority in all things regarding Christianity. Why him? What made him so special? And why just him? There have to be others. Uh, by the way, I am a non-Catholic. Any thoughts there, uh, Father? Okay, well, that's that's a logical question. Sure, and sure. I think it's good to ask. Um um, St. Thomas Aquinas was not a pope. He was not a bishop. He did not have the, the official teaching authority. So uh, he doesn't have any charism of infallibility as the pope does. Um, but he was one of the most intelligent, brightest scholars the church has ever seen and probably will ever see. Um, his Summa Theologica covers... You know, the whole pa- uh, panorama of what the church teaches in terms of faith and morals. And he's the one who made a synthesis of Aristotelian philosophy and Catholic theology. So he's considered expert in terms of that his vast knowledge of truths, philosophical, theological, and even 
empirical scientific truths because his mentor was St. Albert the Great, who's the patron saint of scientists. Mm. Um, so Thomas was well-versed in many things other than philosophy and theology. And so he's considered an authority, but it ends at a certain point because he does, he cannot outrank or outteach an ecumenical council like the Council of Nicaea, uh-huh. all right, or Council of Trent, or um, you know, um, a papal encyclical, or um, you know, a dogmatic uh, decree. However, at all the other levels, you know, he's he's cited as a expert because he covers almost everything, um, even things like um, prudence and charity, mm. uh, relationships, friendships. Uh, so uh, we regard him as very knowledgeable. In the same way, in the scientific community, people look at Albert Einstein, all right? He, he, Albert Einstein was very smart, very intelligent, but there are people who are maybe more likely smarter than him, but his brilliance speaks for itself, but you can't just use him alone. Okay, and uh, Deborah, thank you so much uh, for your question. Glad that you're watching us today on YouTube. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father John, 833-288-3986. Hilda, watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Hilda says, why does the priest sometimes bless the altar with ashes before Mass? Maybe talking about maybe talking about <laughs> incense there. <coughs> yes, uh, the only time we use ashes are on Ash Wednesday, and we only put them on people. We don't put them on the altar. Right. Um, I think they're now, talking about in, in, talk about incense, right? That would probably be, be my guess too, oh, okay. and that's the, that's resin from from trees that is put on hot burning coals, and then it, it produces uh, this aroma. And uh, it appeals to this, obviously, the sense of smell. Because mm-hmm. remember, in Catholic worship, uh, it incorporates both the body and soul. And so we have, you know, lovely music for the ears. We have incense for the nose. And it's from the psalm, may our prayers rise up to you like burning incense. Mm. So they will incense the altar. They incense the Blessed Sacrament when it's in the in the monstrance. And during Mass, they'll incense the priest, uh, the congregation, uh, again, as a sign of, of, of respect uh, and that we're in a, in a holy and sacred moment. Um, so that's probably what, because sometimes the, the the incense either looks like crystals or I've seen it, especially in, in Anglican churches and, and the Eastern Orthodox, it looks sometimes like peat moss, all right? It, it, it's less crystalline and more um, ashy, if you uh, want to yeah, use yeah. that terminology. Okay. I don't know but, about you, Father, but I just love that aroma, the, the aroma of I incense. like it when it's good, all right, because yeah. there's good stuff and there's cheap stuff, and the cheap stuff will make you gag. There's good stuff that, uh, and I have to say, our Eastern Catholic brethren have us beat. They have so many varieties and, and aromas. Uh, it's unbelievable. In the Latin Church, we've got some that are good. Um, I know in the Church of England, they have a special brew, as they say, uh, for Queen Elizabeth, oh. because it's it's called chokeless uh, incense. It was designed for Her Majesty. Chokeless, love that, Hilda. <laughs> Hilda, thank you so much uh, for your question via YouTube this afternoon. It is Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. Couple of lines open available for you at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's eight three three 
288-388-3986. And I uh, want to remind you that uh, we think a lot about Holy Mass around here at EWTN. You can hear it every two hours on our network called EWTN Radio Essentials. And that is available via the EWTN app and also online by going to EWTNRadio.net. EWTNRadio.net. You'll hear it live at 8 a.m. Eastern and then on Essentials at 10 a.m., uh, 12 noon, 2 p.m., right on through the day. So uh, very, very glad to uh, be bringing that to you each and every day here on EWTN. Let's go to Jerome now in Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Jerome, what's on your mind today? Yeah, we hear that um, Jesus is the second Adam. He was like us in every way but sin. I'd like to know which Adam he was. Was he the Adam with um, walking around the earth? Naming things, was he Adam with Eve before the fall, or Adam after the fall? Okay. Okay, well, that's, that's a good question. Um, Jesus is the second Adam in that, the first Adam, all right, uh, when he was first created by God in the Garden of, of Eden. He was the first man, and he represented all of mankind. That's why when he and his wife Eve sinned against God, it wasn't just a personal sin, it then became the original sin because he was the prototype. It's you know almost like you know a car manufacturer puts out their first new model. Like I remember when the Edsel came out. And, uh, <laughs> it doesn't have a good connotation today. Yeah. Um, Adam sinned. Uh, Jesus had no sin, but he is the first, the new Adam in the in the in terms of the life of grace since the fall, and so. Jesus had a fully true human nature, but it was sinless. It was like Adam's nature before he sinned. Okay, uh, That's why uh, uh, he came to then sacrifice himself on the cross uh, for our sins. So he's, a, he's the new Adam, the second Adam, just as we can then analogously say Mary is the new Eve. Jerome, thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's one from Mary. How do we have a relationship with our daughter who suffers with same-sex attraction and is living out that lifestyle, how do we have that relationship without condoning her behavior? Our grandchildren range between 14 and then down to two months. I want her in our lives, but I don't know how to navigate this situation without giving the impression of consent. Any advice there, Father? Yes, that's um, that's not an easy thing. And no. uh, I would say you, you want to first... Um, get in contact with a group called Encourage. It's, it's uh, a part of Courage. Encourage is a Catholic movement to help uh, people with same-sex attraction. And Encourage is for the family and friends of people who have same-sex attraction. Mm. Uh, you can go online and connect with them. And some dioceses actually have someone, uh, a representative, a chaplain for Courage and Encourage that may be of, of great assistance to you. You always want to treat them with love and charity and kindness, but you don't want to condone something that's immoral and sinful and any more than you would if, if your daughter was uh, heterosexual and she wanted to bring her boyfriend over to the house. Um, you could have a meal with them. There's nothing wrong with that, but I would not, allow, I would not permit them if I was the parent to say, well, you're going to sleep together in this house. Uh, or if they were, you know, had, you had a... Uh, a son or daughter who was invalidly married or wasn't married at all, um, I'd say, look, you know, you're not going to do that in my house. You come to dinner, you can visit us, but we do not want it conveyed to the children 
uh, or in public that this is activity that we endorse. And they might say to us, well, then we're not coming over. Well, then that's their choice. But if you say you're always welcome to the house to visit, um, share a meal, um, spend the holidays or that, mm-hmm. uh, you can do that in the same way you can have someone over to the house who's not of the same faith. You can have uh, someone, you know, um, someone of a different religion or no religion. You know, you're not compromising your religious principles and having a dinner for someone or being kind and civil to them, but you're not to give any impression to the public or in the eyes of God that you agree with what they do. That's formal cooperation and evil, and you don't want to do that. Mary, thank you so much for your email. Let's go to Jan now in Blaine, Minnesota, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hello there, Jan. What's on your mind today? Hi there. Uh, thank you for the call, taking my call. My question is twofold, but they both relate to the virgin birth. I'm an old labor and delivery nurse, so I totally believe in the virgin birth, but I need to wrap my head around the actual birth process. Was was the baby Jesus, would he have passed through the birth canal, or was his birth a, a more of a mystical birth where he just, you know, appeared in Mary's arm? And then secondly, part of this question is, uh, in Revelation, John talks about uh, a woman clothed you know, uh, with the crown of 12 stars, and, and she was about to give birth, and birth was painful, and Satan, the serpent, was waiting for her. Uh, would that be Mary? Because wouldn't she have been free of original sin, therefore excluded from having pain because of sin? So, a long question there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, yeah, a lot of unpack there. Um First and foremost, um, the Church has a psalm teaching that Mary was a virgin, uh, ante, inter, and postpartum, which means before, during, and after all right, uh, the birth of Christ. Now, her virginal and uh, her virginity all right, was, was certainly physical, but the Church does not uh, maintain her that you must believe that Jesus did not you know, leave her uh, through the birth canal. That's the normal way in which... You know, we are born. Um, some theologians wanted to insist that um, Jesus was born without uh, any uh, violation of, of, of his mother's hymen. The church has never uh, weighed in on that issue. Um, I know some some uh, doctors of the church, you know, referred to the fact that Jesus could walk, you know, go through a closed door. So it would not have been uh, difficult for him to do that in terms of his mother. But we want people to know and believe that Mary was truly a human mother. So she, you know, she conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nine months he lived in her womb, and then the day of his birth. Now, did she experience labor pains? Some theologians say yes, uh, only because she obviously experienced the pain and sorrow uh, at the, at his death on the foot of the cross. Um, but she did not have to. Uh, did she die uh, before she was assumed? The church has not definitively ruled on that. I know in the Eastern Church, they talk about her dormition, which is falling asleep as opposed to her death. Mm. Uh, Pope John Paul the Great, in a private uh, discussion, said that, you know, although she did not have to die because she did not have any original sin, she chose to cooperate and participate, as did her son. Jesus obviously did not have to 
experience death at, at a personal level because he was free from sin, mm-hmm. but he chose to uh, embrace the cross. And that's a difference between something that you, you can avoid, something that's unavoidable. Um, Adam and Eve were born with the gift of, of immortality. They would not have died of old age or sickness or of anything had they not sinned. But once mm-hmm. they sinned, death came into the equation. And so Mary uh, could have, on her own free will, uh, embraced this same path of of Jesus, her son. Um, But theologically speaking, she would not have had to. um, But she also needed redemption because she's part of the human race. So uh, what Jesus did on Good Friday, he retroactively applied to her at the moment of her conception in St. Anne's womb, which we then call the Immaculate Conception. So, uh, yes, I believe she came, uh, Jesus came through the birth canal. Did Mary experience um, labor pain? Personally, I, I, I don't think so, because I think she actually did at the cross. Uh, that's when she gave birth to the church. That's mm-hmm. why we can give her the title, uh, Mater Ecclesiae, uh, which was given to her at the Second Vatican Council, Mother of the Church. And that was her sort of labor, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could believe otherwise. You could say, no, I, I I, think she did have labor pains when she gave birth, because the Church has not definitively ruled on that. Jan, thanks so much for your call. It is Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio here on EWTN. Let's go to Vista, California, and talk with Joseph, listening on the great JP2 Radio. Hey, Joseph, what's on your mind today, sir? Oh, good. So, Tom, how are you? Very well. Oh, hi, Father. Oh, Hello. good. Father, I just wanted to, I wanted to ask uh, a couple of questions. One of them had to do with, in the reposing of the Blessed Sacrament, this was the first time this happened, but down in adoration falling was not sung. Father, should that always be sung? Okay. Okay, it's not obligatory. It's recommended. It's suggested. It's very traditional. But the, the legal parameters, liturgically, um, it's not something that has to be done. I know when priests start changing, they don't sing the Tonum Ergo or Solitaris, whether it's Latin or English. Uh-huh. Um, there are very clear regulations on what must be done, what could be done, what should be done. And if it's not must, that gives the, the priest a little leeway just as picking the hymns for, for Mass sure. on Sunday or weekday. So uh, I don't think there's a, any violation of church law there unless it's something that's inappropriate, all right? Yeah, yeah. And they don't want us singing um, non-Eucharistic hymns. So although we are very close to our Blessed Mother, uh, I would not and, uh, has, have as part of Eucharistic adoration um, you know, like Salve Regina, because, uh, you know, the focus on Jesus uh-huh. uh, and Eucharistic worship as opposed to hyperdulia, which would be for the Blessed Mother. Sure. Is that helpful for you, Joseph? It, it is, Tom. It just it bothered me because nothing was sung, and it just sounded, it just sounded so empty. I said, something's not right here. Well... Now and that's we, where you can have a little chat with the priest and say, Father, you know, I, I think it would be edifying and we would really enjoy. I mean, you know, you're not telling him what yeah, to do, yeah. but you can make a, a request. That could certainly go a long way. Joseph, thanks so much for your call. Here's a question from Gus. 
Dear Father Tregilio, someone said to me that because the Bible stated that the earth is at the center of the universe and that it was permissible to stone an adulteress, some of its teachings may be wrong, such as the teaching on the gravity of homosexual acts. So how does one refute this person? Well, it's always context. I mean, Father Levis used to say it so well. When you take a text out of context, you've got a pretext. Ah. Now, when the Bible refers to the earth being the center, all right, that's not a dogmatic truth is being taught there. Uh, just like we even today, we still say sunrise and sunset, but the sun doesn't r- literally rise and set. The earth right. is revolving, but we still use that. In 2022, sure. it's a, f- a figure of speech. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. But Christians nowhere have had the practice of gouging out their eyes, especially today with so many people looking at pornography. There'd be a lot of people walking around with no eyes, let alone just one. So it's the context. Now, in terms of abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, uh, these are things that are part of the natural moral law. And when the scripture reaffirms what's in there, all right, uh, that's something that cannot change. Just like, you know, uh, adultery can never be tolerated or or permitted. Other things which are more um, contemporary or in terms of, like Jesus talks about um, man-made laws, the mosaic laws of what could be eaten or not eaten, that's why they were easily dispensed with Mm. um, during the the Christian dispensation. So we as Christians, we can eat pork, although uh, our Jewish brethren do not. Father, how often do you run into uh, things being taken out of context? Is it like every day? All the, t- all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, people, like I had relatives who said, oh, the church changed its rules on no meat on all Fridays to only Fridays and Lent, so I'm not going to church anymore. I said, what? <laughs> I said, you know, it's like one day the doctors say you can eat eggs, the next day they say no. Well, that, it's not going to make me not trust doctors anymore. Right, right. Makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Father, if you could please leave us with your blessing. Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater et Filius et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. And we'll be praying for that uh, new crop of uh, seminarians oh, coming your please. way. Oh, please, yes. <laughs> and pray for us who are their formators. Definitely will do that. Another great uh, Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio in the record books. Be sure to join Father John next week at the same time here on EWTN. Tomorrow, of course, it'll be Father Wade Menezes from the Fathers of Mercy on Open Line Tuesday. On behalf of Michael McCall and our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price uh, filling in for Jack, uh, Jack today and uh, looking forward to seeing you again tomorrow. Have a great day and God bless.